0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our God and Father in heaven, it is such a wonderful honor that we can come here and we can delight in and fellowship with your presence, that we can gather together and hear from your word. God, I thank you that you have given me the ability to proclaim the gospel today. Lord, I thank you that even though I am an unworthy messenger, I am by no means worthy rightfully standing here. I have no reason to do so in my own intellect, in my own strength, or in my own sanctification or, or my own goodness. God, I have no right to be here, but Lord, I thank you that you have been merciful to me and that you have caused me to be have the opportunity this morning to not only read your word, but to seek to explain it, that I might be understood. Lord, I ask that today my words would be accurate and truthful and persuasive and compassionate, and that the people who are hearing might be moved, not because of any skill on my part, but because of the Spirit who can change us. God, I ask that each person here might be, at this very moment, relying on you and trusting in you to change their heart. That this would not merely be an opportunity to gain wisdom in a mental sense, that we are gaining information in our mind, but this might be a time where we are genuinely transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is to that end that we pray, and in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the main theme of the book of Genesis is the sovereignty of God, and it's everywhere. Every single chapter that we've looked at, we could probably stand here and I could preach to you and say, what we're talking about today is the sovereignty of God. In the life of Jacob, we've been seeing how the sovereignty of God controls all things that you cannot subvert it, that no matter how many people or whatever they do within their own power to seek to mess up God's plans, he always gets his way it's amazing to me that, um, that every time we come to this we literally could be just repeating and repeating and repeating those things and that would be a good thing It does raise a little bit of a challenge in preaching because I want to make sure that we're not just saying the same words over and over and over. Even though the message is the same, I want to get down to a little bit more of a granular level today and see specifically what the sovereignty of God means in specific aspects of what is happening in everyday life of a child of God like Jacob. So point number one this morning, you will chase what you love. People are inconsistent. They're inconsistent in all sorts of ways, but we are perhaps mostly inconsistent in our glaring and frustrating, often uh, practiced uh, aspect of our life where we say we think something is true and then we don't act upon it. We say we know something and then we act in a way that that is not true. We know that speeding will result in a speeding ticket, yet we do it anyway. We know that Taco Bell is bad for us, yet We eat it anyway. My son knows that sneaking into food in the morning before Ashley and I wake up is going to result in discipline, but he does it anyway. There are many occasions where our profession, our words, do not match what we actually do. We believe something in our minds, but we don't believe it in our hearts. Because if we truly believed it in our hearts, we would change. We know something to be factually accurate, but we don't live it out. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God speaks about the people of Judah this way. He says, their people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If someone has a genuine love for something, something it's going to show. It will be evidenced by a lifestyle that pursues and prizes and prioritizes whatever it is that they delight in. So let's consider what this looks like in the life of Jacob for just a moment. We're going to take a couple steps back all the way to Genesis chapter 25. One day, Jacob was making a red stew, right? He probably didn't expect this to be a a really important day in his life, but it turned out to be very significant. He's just making this red soup, and his brother Esau came in from the fields desperately hungry. He had been hunting and failed to catch whatever he was searching for, and it's possible that he was exaggerating, but all we know for sure is that he told Jacob, I'm literally going to die if you don't give me some of that food. But instead of joyfully and freely giving his brother a meal, Jacob asked for an extravagant price. He offered Esau a bowl of soup for the disproportionate cost of the birthright. You want this? give me your birthright. Later, Jacob didn't even attempt to bribe his brother. He just stole his father's blessing. Instead, he walked in right under the the nose of his father, whose eyesight had gone and lied to his father's face, pretending to be Esau. And he just stole the blessing. Why did he do this? What was going on in the heart of Jacob? Did he not know his dad's going to figure it out? It's simple because Jacob loved the idea of having wealth. He loved the idea of having power, and he loved the idea of having all the things that would accompany the blessing and the birthright. He was so desperate to get what he wanted, he was willing to climb over anyone and everyone to get it. But then there was a massive shift that happens in the heart of Jacob. There's this big change that takes place. When he arrived in Padanaram, Aram, where he is in our story today, he fell in love with someone other than himself, maybe for the first time. He loved Rachel. He saw her. He fell in love with her. He wanted to marry her. So he chased her. He went after her. He went to Rachel's father, Laban, and he made a deal. We see these words in chapter 29, verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Notice that Jacob is the one who set the terms here, not Laban. Jacob is the one who makes this deal with him. He's the one who suggests seven years of indentured servitude. In those days, you had to pay a bride's price if you wanted to marry somebody's daughter. It was a dowry. Now, this probably seems really strange to us, but honestly, that's not that unusual in world history. In fact, even in North America and Europe, this was taking place as recently as 250 years ago. You would pay a bride's price in order to marry into the family. But Jacob couldn't pay a dowry. Remember, he was exiled. He had nothing when he left, and he went into Pedanaram. He was not allowed to take anything with him, so what could he give? nothing but his time and his strength and his work. The going rate for a bride during those days was two years service for a really wealthy man, which it seems Laban was not, that it might be three years of service. But he doesn't offer two or three. He offers right off the bat seven years. And Laban must have thought Jacob was a fool. This guy has lost his mind. I better lock this in right now. Let's shake on it. But in reality, Jacob was in love. And you chase what you love. He wanted Rachel. And then when he was tricked and he woke up and realizes he's not next to Rachel, he's next to Leah. He was willing to work another seven years for Rachel because he loved her. So he chased her. He pursued her at great cost to himself. Now, all this has been been leading up to our text that we got to today. So look again with me to chapter 30, starting in verse 25. We'll just go through verse 28 for now. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go for you uh, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Now, Jacob's worked for 14 years with nothing to show for it but his wife and kids. He got a family, but he has no wealth at all from this time. He has no money. He has no flocks. He has no herds. He has no home to call his own. Priceline, I think it was Priceline that used to have this deal that you could use called the Name Your Price tool. Uh, It would allow you to go search for a hotel in a specific city or region. And then it would kind of zoom you into a particular hotel or two. And then you would just name your price, whatever you would want to pay, give them a dollar amount. And if the hotel accepted, you could stay there for cheap. And if it didn't accept, you've lost nothing. So I'm sure that they discontinued this program because of people like me. Um, I would constantly offer places $15, $20. And I would almost always get denied, but not always. And I would do whatever possible to squeeze out every penny of the deal that I could. Laban has just given Jacob a name your price tool. Just stay here. I am being blessed because of you. He said that he had been practicing divination. What is that? Well, this specific word is speaking about a particular kind of witchcraft. It's a form of witchcraft where you take an animal and you would cut it open and take out all all of its entrails and you would slice them open and peel them open and see the patterns on the inside of their guts to determine what are the signs from the gods. It was a demonic and evil way to see what the future would hold or what the past or present was taking place. And so he was practicing this evil form of demonic activity here. And by it, he actually learned something that he seems to actually have gained knowledge of the truth. God, Jehovah God is blessing me because you're here. The only reason I'm getting more and more wealth laid up is because you are here. There is someone here who is, his causing me to gain a blessing. So he's chasing something laban is chasing something too he is chasing wealth like jacob had been earlier in his life and he is willing to lie and to cheat and to even steal food from his own daughters and grandchildren for the sake of getting it but laban has shown his cards he's shown jacob exactly what he wants now jacob knows that he's got an opportunity To work the system he has admitted to jacob that he doesn't want jacob to leave and laban is fearful that if jacob does go he's going to lose his newfound fortune if there was ever a time if there was ever a time for jacob to attempt to gouge laban it was now or if there was ever an opportunity to get back at him for tricking him with leah it's right now but instead this is how jacob responds look at verse 29 jacob said to him you yourself know how i have served you And how your livestock has fared with me for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Now, remember back to Abraham. You shall give me nothing so that nobody may say that you made Abraham rich. No, don't give me anything. Don't give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will pasture your flock and I will keep it. And let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb and every spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come and look into my wages when uh, you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be considered or counted stolen. Laban must have been trying his best to keep his poker face here. He must have been internally just leaping for joy, thinking, man, Jacob is the dumbest barter in the world he cannot figure out how to do this whole bargaining thing the spotted and speckled goats and the black sheep were the least valuable of the flock they got the lowest price in the market but more importantly these are recessive genes and if you were a shepherd you would know this that these do not produce offspring that often have the same traits in them now i'm not a farmer but what i if I, what i read is accurate this week if you have two spotted sheep or two speckled goats like this, and you mate them together, there's still only a 5 to 10% chance that their offspring will have those genetic traits. It is a very recessive gene. And black sheep are even more rare than that, populating about 2 to 3% of a flock or herd. Now, this makes something very abundantly clear here Jacob is not trying to scam Laban. He is the scoundrel. This is Jacob, the liar, and he is working hard here to make sure I am not doing anything to scam you. He's even putting himself at an extreme disadvantage. He's making a deal that makes no fiscal sense. Now, we'll see why he made this deal a little bit later on, but for now, let's consider Laban's reaction. Verse 34, Laban said, good. Oh, that sounds really good. Let's do that. Let it be as you've said. Right? So he agrees. It's like the handshake kind of deal right here. But what takes place immediately after is you see the character of Laban is not like the character of Jacob. That Laban has not been sanctified in the same way Jacob has been. Look at verse 35. But that day Laban removed all of the male goats that were striped and spotted and all of the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black. And he put them in charge, the charge of his sons. And he set at a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. In other words, if these are recessive genes, let's take everything out of the gene pool that might have those recessive genes so that now All of the sheep that Jacob is watching should be producing, by all natural means, sheep that will be mine. Laban shook on this deal, and before Jacob could even go pick out his due, Laban sent his sons and servants to steal all of Jacob's rightful pay. Laban is the worst. He is the absolute worst. Jacob has to feed his family somehow. Yet Laban cares so much about wealth and so much about His growing uh, little kingdom there that he doesn't even care about how much it's going to hurt his own family, his own daughters, his own grandchildren. He just wants his things. Now, I don't really watch a lot of commercials anymore, but during the NBA Finals, there was an ad that kept playing repeatedly. It was like they wanted you to remember this for the rest of your life. It was after every single stopped play. And it was a very interesting commercial to me. I don't honestly remember what brand it was for, but it was for some kind of alcoholic beverage. But their slogan was, What are you chasing? What are you chasing? And honestly, I have no idea what that has to do with what they're selling. It doesn't encourage me in any way to purchase their product. I don't even remember what it is. But it is a brilliant question What are you chasing? So let me ask you, what is it that you are chasing? What do you love? You can tell what you love by what you are continually chasing after in your life. Are you chasing after wealth like Laban? Are you chasing after status or after power or ease or comfort or security? These are the most worshipped idols here on Long Island. Where God deserves to be lifted high, these idols have been placed in his spot, They have taken the first place in many people's hearts. And it's not wrong to work for a paycheck. It's not wrong to work hard to get your wages. But if you find yourself willing to lie or to cheat or to harm someone in some way to get it, then you have just identified an idol in your heart. There's nothing wrong with desiring ease and comfort and relaxation. But if you blow up at your family when they interrupt your me time, then you've just identified an idol. There's a lot of things that we could take time for here and just say, what is it that you protect? What is it that you keep track of? What is it that you chase after? Those things are the things that will help you to identify an idol. Anything that you love or enjoy, you have to carefully consider that and make sure that you're not putting too much emphasis on it in your life. You must ensure that things, even good things, do not become ultimate things in your heart because you love, you chase what you love. Point number two, you will be disappointed by what you chase. I want you to see the futility of Jacob and Laban's chase for wealth and power. Jacob sought for all of the things that he wanted by bribing his brother out of his birthright, by stealing the blessing. How did that work out for him? What happened to him? Did he get the livestock that he was promised in the birthright? Did he get the power and authority that he was promised over all the other family members when he got the blessing? Is that what he received? No, instead, he was exiled far away to a land that he didn't want to go to, and he had nothing, nothing with him. He had to work for 14 years as a servant before he was given anything, and even then he was swindled out of it. Jacob's attempts to claw his way over everyone else and to get what he was chasing only resulted in everyone around him, including himself, getting hurt. Laban's greed led him to lie and to cheat and to steal from Jacob and his own children. He was anticipating that this deal would somehow cause Jacob to remain under his thumb for a much longer time. And Laban believed that by stealing away Jacob's sheep, there would be very few animals that would ever transition into Jacob's possession. Therefore, Laban believed that his flocks would increase while Jacob's would never grow enough to be self-sustaining and that he would always rely on Laban. Let's see how that worked out for Laban, starting in verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, and that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob was a hard worker. Where he had once been a scoundrel who would bribe to get his wealth or he would steal to get his wealth, now he had become dedicated as a shepherd. And Jacob had become an honest man. Where he had once been a liar and a thief, he was now working well within the boundaries of the agreement that had been made with Laban. Laban, on the other hand, was constantly receiving the weakest and the sickliest of the sheep of the flock. Those who were born without spots were not healthy, and God caused far more than normal striped and spotted sheep to be born, and Laban was constantly frustrated and disappointed. When you have a false god, that's what they do. They disappoint you. Money eventually runs out. Status eventually fades away. Most of us will outlive our own reputations. Security can disappear as quickly as a drunk driver can fall asleep at the wheel and pop that median and crush your car head on at 70 miles per hour. But let's just say that you always get the wealth that you want. And let's just pretend that you always get the ease and comfort that you're chasing. And let's just imagine for a moment that you will always bask in the joy of being highly respected and highly regarded by all, and that no one would ever say anything negative about you on this earth, and and all of these things that you were chasing actually turn out in your favor, eventually you're going to die. And those idols could never supply you with enough temporary pleasure to outweigh the eternal penalty of sin. Consider Psalm 73. The writer Asaph says this, he says, I was envious of the arrogant. I wanted what they had. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and they are sleek. They are not in trouble like others are, including, I think, in that he's speaking about himself. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Now, that sounds bad to us, but in those days, that meant that you had wealth, that you had a feast regularly. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Asaph wrote this psalm because he was beginning to become jealous of these people. He began to look at them and be like, I want to be like that. I want all the blessings that they have. I want that prosperity that they are holding on to. But then we find a shift in his understanding in verse 16 and following. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I don't know how to get this. I can't, my mind cannot fathom what is happening here. In verse 17, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. I'm not looking now at their present. I'm looking at their future. And I got in the presence of God and God corrected my thinking and showed me I'm looking in a very short-sighted way at what's happening right now. But I am not looking at their future. He says, truly, verse 18, to God, you set them in slippery places. All that wealth. That is like putting their foot on a moss-covered rock in the middle of a waterfall. They are going to fall. You put their foot in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when someone awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them like phantoms. That's their end. And so when I look at them, I don't need to see this temporary prosperity around them. If you are chasing an idol, it will not satisfy you. They promise you that they will, and then they never do. It will only hurt you, and it will hurt the people around you. Just like Laban, you will strive and strive and strive to get what you want, not taking others into account, but God will frustrate your plans. Or even worse, he won't and you'll live your entire life chasing after them. And then you'll experience what he discusses in what we've been discussing over and over and over, Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines those he loves. If he is not disciplining you, then you're going to experience something much worse in eternity. Point number three, God loved and chased after us. Up to this point, I've avoided giving any indication of what changed Jacob. We see that there's a new man here. This person is completely different than the man who lived with his parents. This man who was a scoundrel, a liar, a cheater, who his brother said, are you not rightly named liar? Are you not rightly named Jacob? Now he is honest. He is hardworking and he is working to the point where he is actually putting himself at a disadvantage. How did he go from being a thief to being diligent? If if it's, no, it's no coincidence here that the central event in Jacob's life was his encounter with Jesus at that stairway to heaven. Several weeks ago, Bob G. and Sarah preached about Jacob's encounter with Jesus. God opened Jacob's eyes to see this incredible event where angels were literally ascending and descending from the sky down to earth, and it was the Lord who stood above them that actually changed Jacob. The Lord spoke to Jacob and told him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed behold i am with you i am with you i am with you and i will keep you wherever you go and i will bring you back to this land for i will not leave you until i have done what i have promised to you which by the way is not till after he's dead god sought jacob God sought after Jacob. He did not have to appear to him in the wilderness. He did not have to show up in the sky at Bethel. He did not need to do that. But that was the difference in Jacob's life. Everything in his life shifted in that moment. God brought Jacob into the covenant. There was a complete paradigm shift that took place here, which is evidenced by his humble, honest, and hardworking approach in his relationship with Laban. This is a new man. This is a new creation. The covenant made to Jacob was not the end. It only led to the new covenant and the new covenant was made in a very different way. Jesus, the perfect, holy son of God came and he lived a perfect life and he died a substitutionary death in order to make us part of that covenant. All who would ever believe are in him, like like Negley talked about earlier. We are in Christ because of what he has done for us. We are part of that covenant, not by our merit or our effort, but because of what he has done. He bore the sins of many so that we might be part of his family. When we were yet his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly so that we might be conformed into his image. Now, do not overlook the gospel. It could be really easy in this sermon to just come to Genesis 30 and say, don't be greedy or cheaters never prosper. Those are true things. But to say that would be to miss the reality that is central, that what took place in the life of Jacob. Jacob is a new man because he has placed his trust in Jesus Christ. Now, he knows him from a distance in in, like a shadow, but he will come to know him after his death in full. We have the fullness of Christ as he has been presented to us, as he has come and made himself manifest to us as he came 2,000 years after Jacob was on the earth. Now, if you don't know Jesus, I, I want you to see the great extent to which he has gone to chase after sinners. And for those of us who do know Christ, I want you to listen to these words and be freshly astounded with the way that Christ pursued us in love. I'm just going to go through a couple passages really quickly. Don't miss this brilliant reality. Don't overlook it or think, I know this. Be stunned that he chased after sinners like us. First Peter 18, 1 Peter 18, through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, you were not given this inheritance with perishable things, such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot, or blemish. That is how he came after us. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross that's how he chased us therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father he is worthy of it why because he chased after us Do you see that? Do you see the link here? He is worthy because he's worthy of all of our honor and all of our praise because he has sought us and bought us. Acts chapter five, verse 30 through 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Do you see how far God has gone? God the Father sent his Son. Do you see the love of God that he would come after us? That he would pursue us? That he would chase after us? No one comes to the Father unless he draws us. We would never go unless he grabs us and brings us and carries us and arrests our hearts and brings us to himself. This brings us now to our final point of the morning. If you love God... You will chase after God, and all these things will be added unto you. Once again, I have to admit, I'm not a farmer. But I don't have to be in order to tell you that this situation with these sticks that he's cutting and stripping, and that's weird. That is not normal. That is bizarre. How in the world did Jacob know to do this? Why don't people still do this in order to produce the kinds of animals that they want? Simply put, that's not how genetics work. This is not a superstitious action taken by Jacob, but this is also not the work of brilliant husbandry either. Jacob was not at the forefront of the essential oil business here. He is not doing something that is causing these animals to produce in his own power. Jacob can't force these animals to produce spots or speckled in their offspring. So how is he doing it? There is an answer. We're going to have to hold on for a moment to find out. I know you're at the edge of your seats wanting to know how this worked. You paid for the whole seat and you're only using the edge. So how did he do this? Well, in order to understand it, you have to jump forward a little bit. Jump forward one chapter. If you've got it in your Bibles, flip over one page. Genesis 31, verses 9 through 12. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Now here's Jacob speaking to the daughters. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. In other words, here he's giving wisdom to Jacob about how to do this, Is Jacob the one that is going to somehow magically make them into spotted and speckled offspring? No, he's not doing anything. This was not a natural phenomenon taking place. This was a miraculous work done by God himself. The phrases used in this section are the exact same deliverance language which are used in the Exodus of Moses. I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. Later he would say to Moses, I've seen all that Pharaoh is doing to you. It's the exact same phrase, just a different name. And God loves his people. He cares for his people and he delivers his people. Next week, we're going to consider Jacob's exodus, as it were, as he exits out of Paddan Aram and goes into the promised land. But for now, I want you to consider one final thing. I don't want you to go away this morning thinking that God is going to certainly bless you with all of the material blessings like he did for Jacob please don't see that if you just do what God wants you to do or put your trust in him, he's going to fill up your house with all the things that you want. He's going to fill up your bank account with all the money that you want. Your body is never going to be touched by any illness or disease. Those physical blessings that Jacob received are always meant to be a spiritual parallel to us in the New Testament, what we have inherited in Christ. God prospered Jacob. Yes, he did, but it's clear from the vision that he had that he had been serving god or at least i could say it this way he had been chasing after god why did he change because he knew god was right there with him he knew god was standing over him and watching him he knew that god had been there and had cared for him and god gave jacob many flocks and herds but the flocks and herds were not his prosperity they were just the things that god gave to him is that what you want from god flocks and herds? Do you just want wealth or fame or your glory to be lifted up? Do you want a good reputation before the world? What is it that you want from God? I want to close out today by helping you to properly define prosperity in a biblical way. God did prosper Jacob, but his prosperity was not counted by his wealth. How do you define prosperity? If you believe that life is all about money, that's how you will define it. If if money is your God, then whoever has the most money is the most prosperous. But what God is trying to tell us in the Bible is that's not how he counts prosperity. Consider Psalm 1 when it speaks about the righteous man. You know this Psalm. It's so famous. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, blessed there is going to be connected to prosperity in the poetic parallelism here. So hold On a second, you'll see this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That word blessed and prospered, they are connected in a parallel way in this poem. And if you pay close attention, you'll know that this this seems to be contradictory to the rest of the book of Psalm. It seems contradictory to what we read earlier. When we read Psalm 73, we read earlier that Asaph, righteous Asaph, was being bombarded with hatred and unkindness, and he was suffering in poverty, and it was the wicked who seemed to have all the prosperity of this world, right? Is that not what we read? If you start at Psalm 1, you see that those who do this, who are righteous and avoid sinning, are going to prosper, but then you can't even get to chapter 2 before you begin seeing people who are righteous, who are suffering, how are we then to define prosper here? How are we to understand prosperity? Is it a big house or lots of money or a retirement fund or an easy life filled with comfort? Consider the savior Jesus Christ. Is he not the most righteous man who ever lived? Is he not the full definition of Psalm chapter one? Is he not the very example of what we are to be like? How then can Jesus say foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head? John 8:20. Is that prosperity? All that he does, he prospers. Jesus is the definition of Psalm 1, yet he doesn't have a home. Our definition of prosperity needs to match what the Bible is saying here. If you look at Psalm 1 again, you will see that there is a strong example of Hebrew poetic parallelism parallelism happening here. In verses 4 through 6, we see that the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Prosperity looks like this. It looks like standing firm like a tree planted by the water. It looks like being able to avoid sinful temptations in the world. It means ultimately that you will prosper in the judgment. It means that you are not going to be blown away like chaff, like the wicked. God prospered Jacob, and he took a son, he took a ton of livestock with him when he left Badana Ram, but he also took something much more valuable. He took with him a sure and tested faith he went there a coward he went there a thief and he returned an honest man he returned a god honoring man who was living openly before the one who he knew was watching he he had been exiled to badnaram because he was the definition of the unrighteous man in psalm 1 but he was returning now like a tree that was bearing fruit in its season so church i want to encourage you to trust in christ When you don't get what you want in life, when your paycheck is not what you would like it to be or your health begins to fail, trust in Christ. Because during the midst of the trials that Jacob was experiencing, that's what he seems to be doing, trusting in Christ. He doesn't know Jesus by that name at the time, but he was trusting in the God that he encountered. And he was believing the promise that was given to him. I will be with you. Do you realize that promise is the same thing that Jesus gave to us? Matthew 28 verse 20, and I will be with you to the end of the age. We have every reason to delight and rejoice and experience the same kind of of, uh, of, uh, prosperity that he had because we can ground ourselves in what he was grounding himself in, that God is with me. So place your trust in Christ. If you're struggling to do that, I would love to talk with you and counsel you about that. But ground yourself in the word of God, knowing that he is with you. Let's do that together. Let's place our trust in him together as we close in prayer. Our God and Father in heaven, it is such an honor that we can see you are with us. You don't leave us or forsake us. You never run from us, Lord, that we can truly prosper in our souls because the spirit of God is changing us and sanctifying us and that we can stand firm like a tree rooted by the waters, that we will not be shaken when trials or temptations come, that when someone comes along and they, they give us everything that we could ever want at a cost,